Chapter thirty one of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty one. In Blois Cathedral, three weeks after the terrible Oldfort railway accident, there wandered languidly the usual number of perfunctory, unambitious sightseers. They were persons who roamed about, their heads hardly knowing what their feet were doing, their faces mostly worn horizontally, as they gazed at the bidding of the fervid verger, on the magnificent span and the old original timbers of the roof. Today it had rained, and the air without was humid and reviving. Within, the aroma of dreamy stoves, the clanging of whose heavy doors sounded at intervals through this vast Gothic cellar, as the clerical stoker, shuffling about desultorily on his wooden leg, replenished them, deadened the atmosphere. In the aisles, the voice of the Cicerone verger, a character retrieved in the past from Baptist circles, was heard like a faint droning whisper as he piloted the cherry-weary American round the chapels and clashed his keys at the entrance to the white marble tomb of St. Gundred. The parties he led slavish, weakly-stepping tourists, with their ugly bags and satchels, looked like ants gathered round a gigantic rock's egg. Amy and Jeremy Dan scorned his assistance. They had been here several times before. It was not because they were unenthusiastic. "'Fine, isn't it?' said he. "'Very fine,' she replied. The cathedral dwarfed him. Hatless, his pince-nez raised, reverent of architecture and of religion, though critical and questioning of both, Amy saw him under a new light now that he belonged to her. The motives and consequent motions of the cathedral builders were full of contested points. They interested Mr. Dan deeply, and always had. He murmured half to her and half to himself, "'It is a question, and I doubt if we shall ever solve it, whether Bishop Adamar, do you know we are living in what is popularly called Admer's Lane, though officially North Street, whether Adamar finished to the end of the choir, or only as far as the first bay of the nave? Where do you say to? The first bay of the nave, just there. He evidently intended to do so. It is my belief he did. She held in her hand a shilling guide purchased a few moments ago from the custodian, and referred to it. Let us see what the book says. The same as I say. I wrote it. Her enfeebled intelligence seemed unable to comment on this trivial but new idea. She turned round, and, looking wildly towards the east entrance, asked in a trembling manner, "'Where are we living now? Can you tell me? We! Oh, dear!' The man gently pivoted her by the shoulder in the direction of the great iron portals. Then he replied quietly, "'We are staying in a lodging on the other side of the river.' and very nice lodgings they are, too. Good, clean, sensible landlady, asks no questions, doesn't pester you with conversation when I'm away, does she? Oh, no, but I wish I was dead. Hush now, Amy. They left the cathedral. She babbled on weakly. You promised you would make me forget. You put your fingers over my eyes and swore that I could see nothing. But I saw, and I still see. I see the whole thing, lights going off, blumping into round balls with a loud noise, behind me, beside me, anywhere I don't expect. Just now, before we left the cathedral, the altar was bursting into flames, 
and I seized the guide-book and tried to take my thoughts off, and you wouldn't let me look at it. Oh, I am worn out with seeing and hearing. The shrieks, he said gravely. You must not think so much of shrieks. Probably it was the people who were frightened that cried out, not those that were hurt. Oh, no, they were all dead, but they screamed before they died. Poor dear Edith, I was really fond of her. She didn't scream. Why didn't you let me see her? I know now that it was what I wanted. The doctor said I might go in and see her, but I refused. It would have settled me to see her looking calm. She looked calm? Swear she looked calm? Yes, quite calm. On my honour, she didn't know anything of it all, didn't suffer. She only died. Well, well, death is nothing. I wish it had been me. Amy, Amy! I annoy you, she said with perspicuity. Tiresome woman that I am. I'll be quiet. Just tell me again quietly how you came to leave her side in the train. Just before we came within a mile or two of the station, I got up and walked forward along the corridor to another part of the train. Why did you do that? For no reason. Yes, I will tell you. I did not want to see you first in her company. So you let her die? Get in, he said almost roughly. He had hailed a dilapidated-looking station fly that slowly crawled up at his bidding, and they were driven over the cobbles of the market-place, across the river, and up the steep stone-paved street that led to North Street. She sought for and took hold of his hand under the ginger-coloured rug. Jeremy, I know that I am unjust. Nerves? I do beg your pardon for them. You never thought I would start being feminine, did you? Oh, yes, I knew you would. You have been feminine ever since the morning I found you sitting there all alone on the wall outside Susan's cottage, hugging your bowl of goldfish, and all the rest of you as black as my hat. I can remember it now. I could not stand it. Did you pity me so very much, Jeremy? So much that I showed my pity by ruining you. That is what man's pity is worth to women, and I swore to Edith in Paris that I would not do this thing. My only excuse is, I do mean to be good to you. I am sure you do. Nonsense, child. You are sure of nothing. Up till a week ago you were hardly sane. You are not much better now. After this scene I see I shall have to be very careful of you. The funny thing is, Amy, that you are more desperately honest, you are straighter in every particular than I dreamed. How could I let myself think— I know this now. You were by far the chastest being in my house. My mother-in-law, with her hundred divorce cases, is a messalina to you. It is your cursed habit of undervaluing yourself that has undone you, if you only knew. Amy! He helped her out of the cab, paid the man, and rang the doorbell of a little cobby house, with an impertinent bow window, a distinction shared by no other house in the row. I took this place for the sake of the bow, he remarked, looking up, so that you might have a good look out at the cathedral when you felt depressed. His eyes sank again to the level of her face. Don't, don't look so pathetic. You make me feel villainous. The landlady opened the door, and singly, respectably, they proceeded upstairs to the front room with the bow, 
Amy, without taking off her hat, sat down in a basket chair drawn into the oval, and stared across at the cathedral as he bade. Dan threw his gloves down savagely on the table with its tragic black flower-begarlanded cloth. "'Yes, I thought I knew women. What's more, I thought I knew you, and you have taken me in.' "'Taken you in? Deceived you, do you mean?' He laughed. "'Oh, don't be afraid. It's no aspersion on your honesty. You have only taken me in to your own disadvantage. You yourself are the loser by your innocent deception.' He came and sat beside her in another creaky chair, drawn up to the window, and together they stared at the great building on the other side of the river. The old builders of Blois Cathedral chose their spot well. The altitude is not so great, but the effect, atmospheric probably, of the haze rising from the smoky town below, obscures the foundations, and lends a sense of height, of distance, to the vast block of masonry, comprised in cathedral, college, and castle, which no other group of buildings in the world can claim. Yet little North Street, with its wide-flagged pavements, and the low wall like a city rampart, under which many small gardens, neglected, hairy with clematis, and rank with the droppings of unpruned bushes, slope down sharply to the river Durin is probably not more than two hundred years away from the two central towers that crown the other bank. It gives me the same feeling of unreality that my Japanese dwarf tree at home does, said she at last, as if it and I were not on the same planet, an eerie, uncanny feeling. And I, he said, could easily imagine that I see it all in a kind of opium dream, a palace of Kubla, or Adhemar Khan. There are people, Amy continued, who would get some sort of help from looking at a building like that. Or say they do, a mere matter of association, but we, I suppose, if we would allow that kind of influence to sink in, it certainly has an appeal for me, in the blood, the thing my people fought for. Sometimes, said she, I think it is a pity we do refuse to let it sink in. The fear of our fathers, that Ruskin speaks of. We have lost it, and it was perhaps, after all, a salutary thing. We teach it in our board schools. That's all right. Amy. He laid his hands on hers. Do you know I have come to this? I want to ask you, here, to make the old, old vow. I feel as if I must put the question to you, and hang on your answer like a boy. Come, do you love me? She stood up with a gesture of infinite weariness. "'And I can't answer like a girl, as you wish. I am confused. Oh, why need we go into heroics, you and I? It is so absurd. I haven't the instinct for it, or else all is vague in me. I know so little about it all, and I do not want to know.' "'And I have taught you nothing? Nothing? Well, never mind.' You are yourself, you can't alter yourself, and here you are, cruelly, tactlessly sincere, you who in other matters have as many eyes as a snail, and the softest hand on a mouth. I mean a horse's mouth, not mine, good God. You never touch me. You never kiss me of your own free will. And I long for something to make my crime seem worth while, something to lighten the burden of my remorse. He laughed nervously. 
I can't tell what your crime is. Oh, yes, I suppose I do. Never mind that. You should mind. You ought to mind. You ought to let me spend my whole life in expiating it. There is one little thing you could do for me. Well, what? He returned impatiently, repentant already of his unpractical impulse. He tried to take her in his arms. To his surprise, she yielded, and became at once the clinging thing he would have had her, a woman intent on getting her way, Delilah-wise. Her mouth was upturned to his, her lips alternately kissed and pleaded. Go away, go home. And leave you, here, alone, over Sunday? Yes, I've been alone here before, and they are very kind to me. She's a nice, simple, motherly woman. I am not afraid of being alone. What else has my life been? But one thing, I must, I must be by myself. I think I shall go mad if you won't allow it. The servile expression she used pleased him. Only tell me why. Because I can't see. I can't find my way while you are there, focused right in the middle of my picture. I want to ask you to get out of the light all the time. I don't mean to be rude, but you do prevent me seeing clear. Please, please indulge me. Kiss me again and I'll do anything for you. With a power of abandonment he had never before seen in her, Amy was about to comply with his request, but he arrested her. No, he said, on second thoughts, I won't have that kiss, too slavish. And you are nothing less than slavish. You have been so good that you deserve that I should respect your wishes. I will go, after dinner, and I will come back on Sunday. No, Monday. But my work. You can leave it for one day. Not without damage. Now you are attacking my purse, and you know that that affects me considerably. You must take it as a measure of my regard for you, and my remorse if I comply. That mysterious remorse, said Amy, almost cheerfully as the landlady knocked loudly at the door and then brought in tea. She was like many of her north-country sisters, sad and dour and kind, motherly too, in a languid, inartistic way. The vitality had been battered out of her by a bad husband, and the poetry by constant consideration of the business aspects of life. It is generally the way in a show-town. Sentiment is non-existent under the walls of a pair of the most splendid medieval monuments that the world has ever seen. The sweetness and light inherent in Blois, and its suggestive stones, is only for the strangers that visit it. There are persons in Blois who have never found time to go over to the castle that parties of trippers come thirty miles to see. Mrs. Gray was one of the recalcitrant, but she looked ladylike, she could cook, and her faint weariness of manner was soothing. Mr. Dan considered that he had fallen well. These sad, self-contained women are too practical, too languid to permit themselves reflections on the respectability of quiet people who pay, not through the nose, but decently and in order. She left them with her usual, "'You'll ring if you want anything.'" End of chapter 31 Read by Lisa Reichert